Good morning. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Our scripture reading today is from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 39. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And this is the word of the Lord. The Holy Spirit is here. See, every time I turn my microphone on, this happens. When I forget to turn it on, it doesn't happen. Let's pray. Lord, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. And what we are not, make us for Christ's sake. Amen. After the warning not to fall away, the author now wants to reassure his listeners, his readers, Um, that he is confident of better things for them. We saw this back in chapter 6 when we had the first warning of not falling away, do not not be apostate, do not fall away, and uh, the stern warning from the author, and then he transitions into saying, but I am sure of better things of you, or when I look at your life, I am more confident that you will not fall away, and that is in no way to lessen the warning in any way, but he is saying... I see you persevering. I see you running well. Patience. Keep doing that. And chapter 10, as you've already seen over the last couple weeks, is kind of a summary of the first half of Hebrews. Now we're starting to move into real practical application. And so he's saying some of the same things again. And as we heard the past two weeks, we should not fall away. Last week, do not lose your salvation, part two. Do not fall away. Left on your own, you will fall away. It is impossible for you to persevere. But with God, all things are possible. Amen? He has not lost any of his own. So this encouragement now then comes in in two parts. So we've got that warning, and now he is doing just like he did in chapter 6, and he's saying, but I see some real evidence of faith, genuine faith in you. And he's going to lay that out for us here this morning. And this encouragement comes really in two parts. First, he wants them to remember the past. We have two points this morning. One, remember the past, right? We're going to look at that through uh, 32 to 34. Remember the past. And second, respond in the present. All right, those are our two points this morning. Trying to make it real simple this morning versus my last sermon so Rusty doesn't get confused. Just two points. Please doesn't hear me. Remember the past. Recall the past. This is the fruit of genuine faith that is seen through 
their suffering. Verses 32 to 34. 32 to 34. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and abiding one. This is what we're supposed to recall. Now, he wants them to be challenged by their past character. Look at what you have endured. Look what you have overcome. And he wants them to let that past faithfulness now encourage them all the more, encourage them afresh as they look forward to the suffering that they will face. He's referring to a time of persecution and suffering that these Christians that he's writing to went through at the hands of the the Roman government. They had experienced persecution and affliction. From our text, we see that at least in this community, nobody had died yet. Nobody had been martyred for their faith yet. But as we see, they had suffered a lot of things. Imprisonment, the plundering of their property, and mostly this public rebuke and public reproach that they had faced, this mocking from the world around them, this belittling of their faith of the people around them. And he says, I want you to see that you are faithful during that time because there are hard times coming. Struggles will abound for those who walk in righteousness. The scripture promises us this. And so he wants them to be encouraged in their faith. Recall the former days. Recall the former days when, first of all, you were enlightened. Let's see what he encourages them to recall. First of all, he wants them to be encouraged because they have been brought into the family of God. They have been enlightened. You'll notice here that our author does not spend lots of time emphasizing the time and the place in which they became enlightened. And if you remember past sermons where I think it was Pastor Russ who preached a sermon that said, um, if you are a sheep, you'll do sheepy things. Right? And if you're a goat, you're going to do goat things and not sheep things, and you want to be a sheep but not a goat. What he is drawing out here is he's not drawing out a time and a place when they gave their life to Jesus. He's drawing out what happened after they became enlightened, what it looks like to be a Christian, what it looks like to understand and to receive saving faith. That is what you should look for as you begin to ponder at times in your life. Am I actually a Christian? Is there any assurances? Is there any evidences of my salvation? Don't spend so much time recalling a time and a place, but spend more time recalling what took place after. You should see a difference from your former ignorance to when you were enlightened. But recall the former days, he says in verse 32a, after you were enlightened, after you were saved, after you were no longer ignorant, the following results of the power of the Holy Spirit's indwelling. You begin to love the things that you used to hate and hate the things that you used to love. For some of you, this came on like flipping the lights on early in the morning, bam, the Holy Spirit came in and radically changed you. 
Some of your testimonies are like that. Others of you, it was more like a dimmer switch. It began to come on slowly. Now, I do believe that there is a time and a place, I think the scripture is clear, there's a time and a place when you are regenerated by the Holy Spirit, when saving faith is given. But for some of you that came on brightly, for some of you it came on shortly. Regardless, the author is saying, be encouraged, church, be encouraged, first of all, because you're saved. You're no longer children of darkness. You are now children of light. Colossians 1.13 says, He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness, and he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Look at the difference. Be encouraged in your faith, and, and do, not, do not move on quickly from pondering and wondering that God would save such a wretch as you. Amen? You are not deserving of God's grace. Church here that he is talking to and CTL, you are not beyond, you are not deserving of God's grace. You are not beyond God's judgment. Be encouraged. You've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. Be encouraged. Now, you should be more encouraged as you begin to see the fruit of the Holy Spirit's indwelling power in your life. Even an infant believer will begin to have this recognition of their sinful state before their enlightenment. Even the most infant believer will begin to understand and, 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 and proclaim out of their mouth, give testimony to, I was once this. Running after the, 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 the delights of this world, and now I am this. Something that in Pilgrim's Progress, Christian declared often after his burden was taken off, especially in his infancy as a believer, he proclaimed, I was once burdened down and living in the city of destruction and a slave to my own sin, but now I've been set free by the blood of Jesus Christ. There's this difference, though. There has to be a change, a change in desires, a desire to live holy and righteous, a desire to be humbly taught to walk in newness of life. This is the work of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16 talks about this. It says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. I used to be ignorant, wandering around in the lies of this world. But now, through the enlightening power of the Holy Spirit and the quickening of the Holy Spirit, I have been made alive. I am no longer ignorant. I am now been made wise unto salvation. And he who has called you, Peter goes on to say, who is holy, then you, as a result of that enlightenment, should be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you should be holy, for I am holy. Titus says the same things. You were once foolish and disobedient, led astray, slaves of various passions and pleasures, passing your days in malice and envy and hatred of others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God, of our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his great mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Spirit, whom he has poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that the unrighteous 
that unrighteousness will not inherit the kingdom of God, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, or idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were enlightened. There is a difference now. You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Is there a difference from what you looked like before your enlightenment to after you were enlightened? If there's not, perhaps you have not been enlightened. If you do not see a change, a change in desires, a change in holy living, and we'll talk about some more evidences of that here in a minute, perhaps the question to ask is, am I really a sheep? Do I believe that God's way is not just something that I should adhere to, but God's way is best and beautiful, and do I desire his holiness for others? Good questions to ask if you're not quite sure if you see much of a difference before your alleged enlightenment. You were enlightened. And as a result of that enlightenment and as a result of their perseverance in the faith, the fruit of the Spirit coming out in their life, verse 32b says, you endured a hard struggle with suffering. Now remember, this is really important to remember, in light of last week's sermon and last week's text where he's warning them against apostasy, don't fall away. Now he's seeking to step in in a very pastoral tone and encourage them saying, but I see evidence for genuine faith in your life. All right, now don't forget the warning, but I'm encouraged and you should be encouraged because I see real genuine faith in your life. And this is the evidence of that enlightenment, okay? It's really important that you understand that as we go forward here. The evidence that he gives here for their enlightenment, that their faith is genuine and that they continue walking like that, that they will persevere, they will inherit the promise, they will not fall away, is that they endured struggles and sufferings, right? Now, don't misunderstand the word struggle here. Okay, this word is, that is translated struggle here in our English text is the Greek word where we actually derive our English word for athletics as well. So what the author here is saying is that when they faced persecution, it was like a hard-fought athletic contest. There was nothing passive in their display as they struggled. In fact, they, sh they showed superb spiritual athleticism, if you will, as they stood their ground in the face of wickedness. We have this idea um, of the early church sometimes, like that they were just like sitting around, you know, praying, and then people would just come in and like chuck them to lions in the arena and stuff, and they were just in their houses, minding their own business, just praying over their meals, and just reading their, you know, Bibles in their house, and all of a sudden, the Romans kick in the doors and drag them out. That is not the case at all. Now, the reason they were suffering persecution is because they were boldly obeying the Great Commission to go into all the world and make disciples, and to teach them to observe every single thing that Jesus Christ had commanded. That's why they were suffering persecution. 
Not because they were just trying to coexist. Listen, the Roman government, one of the reasons that Rome conquered so well and was able to last so long is they had a system of letting individual religions flourish to a certain point, right? The world in which Jesus came into, the Roman government allowed the Jewish people to observe their customs, to worship their God, to go do your sacrifices. But ultimately, you have to pay tribute to Caesar. There's a ceiling to what we'll let you do. And and they did this all over the world. So what happened with those conquered people groups is they were like, okay, well, they're letting us observe, you know, um, letting us observe our, our, our faith here. Um, and if we don't, they're going to kill us. They're going to wipe us out. So it's better to just observe our faith, um, our faith here and just kind of pay tribute to Caesar, ultimately saying, like, Caesar ultimately is God. We're not really going to say that. You know, we won't really say that, but we'll kind of observe our lives in that way and not push back too hard. And this is the world in which Jesus was born into. This is why the Pharisees used Rome against him, saying, he says he's a king greater than Caesar. Right? They twisted the, the, the Roman government's um, arm in that way. Now, the reason they were suffering persecution is because they were boldly standing for the truth. And what the author is saying here when he says that you struggled, you struggled well, he's saying like, they were like superb athletes, like playing with like finesse. It was a beautiful thing for them to watch. They were, they were not cowards. They were bold in the proclamation of the truth. They did not care what pagans thought of them. They only cared what God thought of them. They were not willing to stop at the ceiling that the government had set for them. They said, no, 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 no. no we will serve Jesus as Lord, period. It's not Jesus plus Caesar or Jesus plus anything else. No, we will serve him exclusively. And as they begin to push back, that's why... The Roman government as well was very good at snuffing out rebellions, and they understood the significance and the power that came with a rebellion that was fueled by religious motives. They were good at snuffing that out, but they could not put out this fire. These people had a boldness and a confidence that was was supernatural. They stood their ground, and the author is saying, I am confident. I am encouraged, and you should be encouraged too as you look back to know that your faith is genuine because you did not, you did not play the coward in the face of the world, but you boldly proclaimed the truth regardless of the circumstances. But how many of us live in such a way as we will say, well, I'm not really going to say that Caesar is Lord, but, you know, Christians really shouldn't be involved in politics that much, you know. Like, this theonomy thing, like, is God's law really good for everything? Like, I don't know about that. We just live such as cowards. And again, hear me, I can't emphasize this enough. He's saying, this is an evidence that their faith was real and genuine. Not that they had, a, you know, they had this much prayer time and this much Bible time. And they were so winsome. And they were so gentle that they had all the pagans loving them. No, he said, they were so bold that they struggled and suffered hardship because the Roman government saw them as a genuine threat. (laughs) And for most of the churches in our country today, the world is so bold, as we have seen this past month with the Rainbow Mafia, because the church is not something to be feared. 
just rolls over anytime the world flexes because we want to be liked, because we're cowards, and because many people have not truly been enlightened. They're faux Christians. And they will be very surprised on that day to hear Jesus say, depart from me, I never knew you. But it was so winsome. Like, I, all these pagan people loved me. Like, my church was full of them. English reformer Hugh Latimer had an opportunity to preach before Henry VIII. And you know Henry VIII's reputation, right? He was a pretty bad dude. So he had this opportunity to preach before Henry VIII. Well, as most of the reformers, they didn't care much for what men thought. And so he offended Henry VIII quite greatly in talking about his immorality and talking about it's not good to chop the heads off your wives that you don't like so you can marry other ones, right? It's not good to just start churches to, uh, to uh, accommodate your lifestyle. He offended him greatly. So he was commanded, as a result of this, commanded to preach he wasn't supposed to, but he was commanded to preach the following weekend, and in his sermon, he was supposed to do two things. He was supposed to make an apology, a public apology to Henry VIII, and he was supposed to soften the message. They wanted him to preach the same message. We want you to soften your message, though. So, on that following Sunday, after reading the text of Scripture, he addressed himself in this way. This is what he actually, uh, Hugh actually said. Dost thou know before whom thou art to speak this day? To the high and mighty monarch, the king, his most excellent majesty, who can take away thy life if thou offendest. Therefore, take heed that thou speakest not a word that may displease. But then consider well, Hugh, dost thou not know from whence thou comest? Upon whose message art thou sent, even by the great and mighty God, who is all-present, and who beholdeth all thy ways, and who is able to cast thy soul into hell? Therefore take care that thou deliverest thy message faithfully. He then gave Henry VIII the exact same message with more gusto, with more boldness, and with more clout with more energy. Stephen Lawson said, the problem with preachers today is that no one wants to kill them. The problem with preachers today is no one wants to kill them anymore. Because we have lost what it actually means to go into the whole world and make disciples and teach people to observe all that Jesus commanded. We have lost what it means to be a follower of Christ in word and in action. Listen, this was one of the major differences in the followers of Jesus directly preceding the resurrection. What was one of the biggest, if not the biggest evidence that Jesus Christ came back from the dead in his followers? They were bold. They were cowards. All of them abandoned him. Let's use Peter as an example. Peter boasts, I will go with you to the cross. I will not deny you. And he denies Jesus to a little servant girl, as Jesus predicted. And then you find him, all of a sudden, 
miraculously standing up in Acts 2 and saying, all of you, let me back up here, sorry, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. Jesus is the one who is Lord and Christ, the one whom you crucified. You see this drastic change in the life of the followers of Jesus. Why? Because they actually saw the risen Christ. Therefore, they were bold unto persecution, the plundering of their homes, public ridicule, and even death. And Peter says, I am not even worthy. History says, Peter says, I'm not worthy to be crucified like my Lord. So history says they turn him upside down. Gladly giving his life in the, in the face of all this struggle for the glory of his Savior. They, they, they struggled. And as a result of their boldness, they suffered. He says, you endured sufferings and struggles and sufferings. Listen, if we are going to live bold for the cause of Christ, if we're going to hold fast to our confession, as the author said we should last week, how do you keep from falling away? Hold fast to the confession. Keep running. Keep walking in repentance and faith. And if you are going to hold fast to your confession, then you are going to suffer persecution and hardship. And if you are not, there is something wrong. You will suffer. Jesus said that this was the case, that you were going to suffer. First, uh, 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, hardship. In Acts 14, 22, strengthening, this is an encouragement to those before they went out to preach the gospel, strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraging them to continue in the faith. And the saying that went through all was that they must endure tribulations and hardships to endure for the kingdom of God. In John 15, Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, because I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. That won't get you followers on Twitter, though. And that won't fill up your church. You will suffer. You will suffer for the cause of the gospel. The question this morning, friend, like if you're, if you're thinking about what we heard last week about falling away and you're looking for evidences that you have been enlightened, are you struggling well? Like are you bearing up under? Are you, are you running with boldness and confidence in the Lord Jesus? And in the midst of your, well, question you should ask before that is, are you suffering? Does the world see you as a threat? Or do they see you as nothing to be worried about because you're not going to be willing to offend anybody? Because A, you want the world to like you, and B, you're too afraid that if the world doesn't like you, that it'll take away your comforts. You know, listen, we can preach the gospel without our 501c3s and nonprofits. We can preach the gospel without AC. Lord, please don't take that away from us. But we can preach the gospel without AC. Right? We, we can preach the gospel in the face of horrible tribulation and, and trial, but well, we're too afraid to. 
The reason we find ourselves in such a crazy state in our world today is because churches have hunkered down and stockpiled building bigger barns, and it's just nothing but a, a, a giant barn to hold their horrible programs and, and weak theology in. A, 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 um, a, a hunker down protect mentality. Make the world like us. Fill our, our, um, our sermons and our songs and our programs full of things that won't offend anybody or step on anybody's toes, and now you have churches that are just full of goats waiting for the slaughter, thinking that they are sheep, because we don't love people enough to tell them of their sin and of their Savior, who can, who can graciously free them from that. So a good question for you to ask yourself, Christian, is do I have enemies? Who are my enemies? What is the character of my enemies? You know, sometimes, I've said this before, sometimes you know you're on the right path by those who are opposing you. Does God have enemies? Some of you are not sure. Does God have enemies? You were once God's enemy, right? That's the gospel. And those who are not in Christ are his enemy. Some are more vocal and outspoken. Regardless, all will be judged for that. So if God has enemies, if Jesus himself said that the world hated him, then why should his followers expect anything different? And if God has enemies, why don't you? The genuine question. If God has enemies, then why don't you, Christian? Well, we just want to adorn the gospel and make it beautiful. And Listen, you, you, can, you can adorn it all you want. But in the end, it is a come and die message. Right? Whether you're a kid who grew up in a pastor's home, or whether you're homosexual, or whether you're whatever, the call is come and die. So in the end, you're going to have to get there somewhere. And if you're just continuing down this winsome path, and, and trying to make things so comfortable, in the end, you're just setting yourself up for more difficult conversations with those who you're sharing the gospel with. I love how Jesus just was out with it. He just said it. Right? He just, he wasn't balanced. We gotta stop saying, well, we gotta be balanced. You know what we gotta start saying? I think I got this from Jim Corber, his wife maybe. You gotta start being faithful. Stop saying you want to be balanced. Just be faithful. Jesus wasn't balanced. He was faithful. He cut straight down through the middle of all the crap that the Pharisees were saying, that the woman at the well was saying. He cut straight down through the middle with truth. And it's exactly what those people needed. And in those moments, what did you see? You saw people either following him and loving him or turning away and hating him. And that's the kind of evangelism the world needs. Not this, go away and think about it, but no, today is the day of salvation. Such preaching that is so bold that people will either say, forget it, I'm out, or they will say yes and surrender. That's the kind of preaching that we need today. Christian, do you have enemies? If you don't, I think you're doing something wrong. If you want the world to like you, you are doing something wrong. Athanasius of Alexandria said famously, if the world is against the truth, then I am against the world. The world loves you, man. Maybe you really don't love Jesus. They suffered reproach 
All right, let's talk about a little bit more about actually what they suffered. They suffered reproach, imprisonment, and the plundering of their property, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being um, partners with those so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your properties. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to public reproach. This here is this idea that they were made into a public spectacle, a public theater. They were publicly exposed to slander, and they endured all this publicly. Not privately, but publicly. People ridiculed them, taunted them, and slandered them. And some of you may be experiencing some reproach, but you're not about to suffer that publicly. I lose my job, right? Or that person might not come to church with me, depending on who's preaching. Some of you have not and are not willing to suffer public reproach because you have hidden your light under a bushel and are ashamed of the gospel. Sometimes he says that you were partners with those so treated. And here the author seems to be like beaming with pride at the unity that they had with one another. One of the evidences of their perseverance was that they joined together in their suffering. One commentator says on this, what gallantry, what honor, I stand with my brothers and sisters here. If you insult them, you insult me. Side by side, side arms locked, they chose to face persecution together. Well, so-and-so is really blowing up the truth on Twitter, so I'm just going to like unfollow him and scoot over here to the side. Or so-and-so is saying lots of uh, uncomfortable things, so I'm just going to scoot over here to the side. I hope that you are not cowardice enough to be like, yeah, I can go to Christ the Lord Church, all right? Because we ain't making too many friends over here. Are you willing to associate yourself with those who are running faithfully, holding fast to their confession. He says this, for you had compassion on those in prison, verse 34a. What he means is they, they literally went and visited those people who were suffering um, persecution as a result of their faithfulness and boldness for the gospel. They went and visited them in prison because in this time, uh, in these ancient cultures in prison, if you didn't have somebody from the outside that would bring you food, water, clothing, and, and come visit you, you were on your own. It wasn't like our, our, our prisons today. Like, they didn't give you anything. And so, in order to care for those people who they loved, uh, who were brothers and sisters in Christ, they would go and they would bring them things. They would offer things to them. They would care for them. They would, they would clean, clean their wounds. And in so doing, they were associating themselves with those people. It was a very dangerous thing to do. It had been very easy for them and probably tempting, too, for them just to stand back. Well, brother so-and-so has just put, been put in prison because he was boldly proclaiming the truth of God's word, and he would not back down and bow the knee to Caesar. So they had put him in prison. He's going to die if we don't go in there and help him. But if we go in there and help him, then they will see us allying ourselves with him. Therefore, it paints a target on our head. But this is one of the ways that they stood firm. They associated and aligned, allied themselves with those Christians who were suffering in prison. They had these, these uh, the, the, the actual word here is they like associated or they, they fellowshiped or they had compassion on those in prison. That word compassion means they had this, um, this fellow feeling. It's the same word and idea that's used for how Jesus feels our pain and how he understands us. 
They had that same kind of love and care for their brothers and sisters in Christ. He mentions this again at the end of the letter in Hebrews uh, 13.3. Remember those who are in prison as though you were in prison with them. Associate yourself with them. Align yourself with those who are boldly proclaiming the truth. It is an evidence of your salvation and perseverance. This is not a thoughts and prayers kind of sympathy. Thoughts and prayers, but I'm not going to get in the fight. Oh, please don't tag me in. This is not a thoughts and prayers kind of a sympathy or allyship. It actually says they visited them in the flesh. They went to be a part of their lives and boldly proclaim, if you offend them, you offend me. If you hurt them, you hurt me. If you insult them, you insult me. Because ultimately you are insulting our Savior. And we will not stand for it. We will suffer and we will do it with finesse. Now, I was thinking about this, this whole imprisonment thing. I thought it was really interesting. Um, they were so willing to do this boldly and joyfully. I think this is really interesting. You know, in our day, you'll get canceled for being a Christian or for associating with Christians. And furthermore, within the air quotes Christian circle, you'll get canceled depending on who you align yourself with. Some of you might have experienced this. You know, you speak of the faithfulness and the godliness of truth speakers, of men like, let's say, like a Pastor Doug Wilson, or a John MacArthur, or a Vody Bauckham, or a Michael Foster, or a Michael Clary, or a Justin Ramey, or a Jim Corber, or a Pastor Fabiano, or those rebel rousers at CTL. And you get put into a certain category, right? My friend, Pastor Fabiano, who we celebrated their building last week, the first building that, that a United Awakening Church has ever had, because they have to meet in tents, and they have to meet in, in um, refugee camps, and they have to meet in houses because they've suffered persecution. Why was he driven out of his homeland of the Congo? It was because he did not sit passively by, but proclaimed the truth of the one true God who is Lord over all and salvation is found in no one else except through Jesus Christ. And the rebel armies and the Muslims did not like that and literally slaughtered a whole United Awakening church plant. Pastor Fabiano said they rolled into this village after the, the uh, guerrillas had gone through, and they found the bodies of 50 of their brothers and sisters in Christ stacked on the walls inside of the church building, and they had to bury them. His wife and son were kidnapped for three weeks by the rebel army. And in that, in that situation, I think, I am suffering nothing. <laughs> but why did he suffer? Why did he have to be put into a refugee camp? And why did he have to, after so many years, five years, they say, we cannot send you back because he was unwilling to bow the knee to Caesar. And when they sent him here, he planted a church. I sat with fellow pastors last Saturday as we celebrated their building. I sat there and listened to them talk about the struggle that they had had in sharing the gospel in, in America and in Africa. And these brothers literally bear the marks of our Lord Jesus in their bodies. The brother who was sitting next to me, who's been in the States for quite a while now, had a scar running from his eyebrow to his ear, bearing the marks of our Lord Jesus in his actual body. 
And it wasn't because they were sitting in their homes just thanking God for their food. But it's because they were boldly proclaiming the truth of the Lord Jesus and saying that everything belongs to Jesus. There is nothing that Christ does not look out upon and say, mine. And we actually believe that. So therefore, we will suffer. And the question is, are you suffering in this way? Listen, I mean, you know, instead of being called faithful, though, the, the common terms for truth-speaking faithful pastors like this is, um, you know, abusive or divisive or harsh or not gentle or not gospel-centered or legalistic or fundamental, hot garbage, cult leaders. Listen, it's costly to align yourself with people who actually take the holiness of God seriously. It's tough. You align yourself with them and you are saying something about you and they will come for you as well. The enemy will come for you as well. Satan and his demons desire to destroy you as you align yourself with the truth. But this is what the scripture is saying. It said this is an evidence of their salvation is that they boldly aligned their self with those who are suffering. This, I mean, this, this hit home here. Your elders and their families have experienced this. Our church has experienced this. Many of you have experienced this. All right. These people are holding fast to the confession and suffering. Persecution. You know, this happened to me when I threw my hat into the um, corner of Pastor Matt. As evil and, and uh, vicious lies were brought against him, as I examined the word of God and the evidence, I said, no, this is not true. This is evil. This is wrong. And I threw my hat in that corner, and I have suffered for it. I'm not saying that in pride or a pat on the back, but I have. You've seen that. In associating with those who are holding fast, you become guilty by association. You know, one-star reviews on Google or your podcast from bitter, spiteful people. I think I'm going to make a t-shirt that says, Christ the Lord Church getting one-star reviews from pagans since its inception. <laughs> would, you, would you wear that t-shirt? Yeah. Okay. I had somebody not too long ago say, this church just takes the, the, the expectation to live holy is just too high at this church. They said, this church is just on the advance. And I said, please put that on Google. Please leave us a review. Because so they persecuted our Lord and all those faithful men and women who came after. All who came after. You're going to see next week, I was going to read a portion of it here, but I won't steal uh, the thunder from Pastor Matt and whoever else is preaching chapter 11. You're going to see that they were torn apart, fed to lions, exposed to the sword because of their faithfulness, of whom the world was not worthy, the scripture says. That's our heritage, friends. That's our heritage. Not gentle and lowly Jesus. That's not our heritage. Our heritage is of a warrior king who will never again be subject to the persecution in which he, he subjected himself to to win us to the Father. He comes again as a conquering king. And I want to continue to persevere so that I might also conquer with him. 
I was just getting ready to do some caveats, but I won't. Are you suffering for righteousness' sake? Matthew 5, 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is what Jesus says in the most famous sermon ever preached. And they did this all with joy. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you had a better possession and an abiding one. How were they able to do this? How were these people able to suffer so much in the face of so much hardship? Here's the key. I just read it. Knowing, verse 34, knowing that you have, not had, but you still have, because you're going to need it as you face the coming struggle, for yourselves a better confession and an abiding one. Commenting on this, John Piper says, the key to their indomitable joy that produced love and good works that were sharing in the loss of property and others that others had experienced is knowing that they had a better and lasting and an abiding possession. When you know you have a better and lasting possession, then you are not paralyzed by loss. If that better possession is great enough, you will even be able to rejoice in your loss. They had a better possession. In quality, it was better than the plundering of the things that they had. In quality, it was better than, than, uh, than having to be in prison and suffering what you had to suffer to be in prison. In quality, it was better than money and possessions. It was better than friends. And in its length, it was eternal. Because houses and money and job promotions and, and, and homesteads and whatever else are going to fall away. And if your security is in those things, then the enemy will come at those things. And for many, when the enemy comes at those things, because where your treasure is, there your heart is, when those things begin to be squeezed and pressured, then that's when Christians give up. That's when they tap out. But for those who know they have a better, lasting possession, they can say, take all that stuff. I don't need that stuff. I'll build it back again, because my father is the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hill. I'll build it back again. Joke's on you. I have something that is better in quality and that lasts forever. This better abiding possession, it's the confidence that they had. It's what gave them the confidence to hold fast in times of trial and tribulation. And what is it? It's all the stuff we've been learning in Hebrews thus far. This is what gave them confidence. This is the better possession that they had. It's the victory in Jesus over death. It's the rest of the saints that we have now and in the age to come. It's the subduing of all of our enemies and crushing of the serpent's head. It's the once for all purification of our consciences. It's the complete removal and forgetting of all of our sins. It's above all the greatest reward that we could ever have, namely that we can through Christ Jesus now draw near to a holy God and live in holiness to his great glory. And that our reward in the end will be none other than God himself. That's the better possession. That's better than my house. That's better than my money. That's better than whatever you fill in the blank. That's better. 
And it gave them this confidence. It gave them this strength. That's why they had joyful confidence in the proclamation of the truth, is that they were able to hold such firmness and boldness in the face of such persecution because they knew the quality of what they had was better than anything they might lose. And that it would last forever and ever and ever. And this, this, this possession, this greater possession, you, you, know, you know this, it's not a thing. It's not a place. It's a person. Who is it? It's Jesus Christ himself. This is what the Israelites understood when they got to the promised land, and they began to understand it even before they went, because God said, I'm not going to go with you because you're a stiff-necked people. And they're like, listen, the land of promise means nothing if you're not there. Why would we go to the land of promise if you're not there? Because you are the promise. At your right hand, there is pleasures and joy forevermore. That's what we want above all things, because that's what we were created for. So therefore, they said, we can lose it. Because we have Jesus Christ, and he is better than anything else that we could ever desire. This is what Paul said about the, I have learned the secret of contentment. I I have been brought low. I have had much. I've had little. I've learned the secret. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I've said before, they didn't know what to do with the guy. They didn't know what to do with these people. Throw them in jail. They rejoiced. Send them back on the streets. They preached. Kill them. They were with Jesus. They were a threat, a real threat, because they had a confidence that couldn't be destroyed. Listen, Satan will come after the things that you treasure most to destroy them. And if your treasure is wrapped up in those things, and it begins to put the squeeze on those things, you will be tempted to give up your confidence and fall away. But if your confidence is fully in Christ, he cannot be taken away, because he lasts forever. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Piper goes on to say about this, that they, that they knew this. He says, you must have this confidence. It's this deep confidence about your future that frees you from the fear of greed that will kill love and make you into a cookie-cutter human who has security and safety wrapped up in ease and comfort, end quote. So whatever is giving you a feeling of confidence outside of Christ will fade away. Your confidence must come from Christ alone, and you will be fearless if it is in that. Christ, Jesus, is your greatest possession and your confidence in him. Therefore, your persuasion, if your possession is Christ, then your persuasion will be powerful. If your possession is not Christ, then your persuasion will be weak. There's no substance to it. Jesus, come to Jesus and you just be able to be your best self and live your truth. That's not helpful. Because when the Holy Spirit actually starts to work, you realize how wretched you are. So you know you don't want to be your true self. That's a lie from Satan. You want to be what God has called you to be. And you can only be that through Christ. So if Christ is your possession, then your persuasion will be powerful. Christ is the seal and guarantee of our hope and all the promises that we have in God come from him. Here are four ways. This is just the first point, by the way. Sheesh. Four ways. Four ways to grow a spine. Four ways to grow a spine. Associ- number one, associate with people who have a spine. Support, defend, encourage them. Paul had such people in his corner, even people at the end of his letters who he said, this person encouraged me. Come up to your pastors and your elders and say, 
Um, I know you're not making any friends preaching this thing, but thank you for preaching the truth. Thank you for preaching the truth that comes against my sin, because I know this is life and death. And I know it's not you, pastor. I know it's ultimately the spirit of God at work within you, and you're just bringing to me what God has to say. Support, defend, encourage them. Listen to, align yourself with people outside of your, your intimate circle here that are being faithful. Associate with people who have a spine online, in books and podcasts and other sermons. Know that no soft place is good for you, Christian. No, press on, run, fight that you may obtain. Number two, repent of being a Christian coward. Repent of being a Christian coward. And call other Christian cowards to repentance. They are living in sin because they are living in fear. And fear, if we give in to it, is a sin. All right, now I'm going to elaborate on point two for a second. Here's some ways that you can repent of being a cowardly Christian. Stop trying, stop saying you're trying to adorn the gospel and be loving when you just want the world to like you. Stop believing the lie that biblical confidence and boldness is prideful. Stop saying that you are being humble when you're actually being passive. You're not being humble actually so prideful that you are terrified of what others think of you. The fear of man has given you a passive paralysis. You can't even get the words out. Men. Here's how to repent of being a Christian coward and grow a spine. One thing among many. Stop excusing your effeminate behavior, lack of leadership, and push back on biblical patriarchy with the excuse that you are protecting and honoring women. Your lack of biblical masculinity and leadership is hurting women. Don't believe the worldly ideologies that say stupid things like, well, well, a woman can just do anything that a man can do. If you ascribe to that lie, you are a coward. You are abdicating your role and you are expecting a woman to do what God has called a man to do. You don't care about women if you ascribe to that. You only care about yourself. Women. Stop trying to soften the hard things God has called your husbands to do. You hear me? Stop trying to soften the hard things that God has called your husband to do. Now listen, by your nature, you are a peacemaker. You are a community builder. You are a beautifier. But Satan wants to come and use that against you. Satan's greatest desire that he gets most glee out of is taking the things that God has designed to be good and twisting those. This last month was an evidence of that. A celebration of what God has created and how it's supposed to look to be twisted completely in the face of a holy God. So don't allow Satan to take what he has given you to be a good thing and twist it. Stop trying to soften the hard things that God has called your husbands to do. Stop trying to tie a bow on all of your husband's weapons. All right? If God has called your husband to thrust a javelin through a demonic lie, then stop trying to tie a bow on it. You know, he's like, yeah, let me make that beautiful. Yeah, let me make that beautiful. Can you just chill a little bit? Like, stop, I was talking to Brent about this, and she's like, it's like every time you reach for a, an arrow, your wife is putting, like, flowers in there. Just throw flowers at them. Like, just be, 
be winsome, be kind. Do you really have to fight this fight? I was so encouraged by my wife recently when she said she was going to, by God's grace, repent of trying to make her husband be something that God has not called him to be. She was going to try to soften the hard things that God had called me to do. Be lady wisdom. Be lady wisdom. Just don't let Satan take what God has given you to be good and be twisted to evil. Cheer your husband on. Like I said, my, my, my bride recently came to me and she said, sweetie, whenever she calls me sweetie, I know it's like, you know, she doesn't normally call me sweetie. Sweetie, this is an actual conversation we had. Is this battle worth fighting? I said, yes. And then she said, then go get him, babe. We are with you. Go get him. We are with you. Like, praise God. That's not, that's not natural. It's supernatural. It's supernatural. Parents, start taking responsibility for your own kids. Bring them up in the Lord. Discipline them. Catechize them. Teach them to light in God's law. Teach them not to fear. Raise warriors. Listen, you know how, you know how you're worried about some of those pagan kids that are going to be a bad influence? on your kids, why is it always that way around? Why can't the pagan parents be worried that their kids are gonna become Christians because they're hanging out with your kids, right? That's the kind of kids we should be raising. Like, not sure that we can hang around the McBee kids because our kids might become Christians. Not sure if we can hang around the Harris because our kids might become Christians, right? And it goes for all of you. That's, that's what we should be hearing. Right? That's what we should be hearing. Well, that was, those are all the sub-points. Uh, here's two more, kind of gross by. Make sure that your suffering is for his namesake. This is really important because I don't want to just give a sword into the hands of a lunatic, right? I think it was Calvin that said something like, you know, you give, a, give, give um, passion without theology or whatever like that. It's like a sword in the hand of a lunatic. So we were just like, yeah! Your, your wives are like, calm down, honey. So, Make sure you're suffering for his name's sake, for righteousness' sake. We don't just fight for kicks and giggles, all right? We don't, we don't do that. Being provocative for provocative sake is sinful, all right? Being argumentative and, and, and uh, contrary and mean for the sake, and spiteful for the sake of those things, is just, is being uh, provocative, all those things are just sinful if that's what they're for. No, we are suffering for righteousness' sake, for his name's sake. Make sure that you're suffering for righteousness' sake. A good way to figure that out is to ask your elders, ask your brothers and sisters in Christ about your attitudes uh, in certain fights. Are you really suffering for righteousness' sake, for his name's sake, or are you just suffering because you're stupid? The last one, fight with joy. Fight with joy. When you suffer for righteousness' sake, laugh because you know that your possession, your reward is greater in quality and in quantity. It will last forever. You can fight with joy because your confidence is in a better and lasting possession. So don't care too much. Don't worry too much. You probably, the reason you aren't able to fight with joy is because you care far too much about what your enemies think of you. You, you care far too much about the consequences of what you said, and you care less about your savior. Jesus said, when they persecute you for righteousness' sake, you should be happy. 
I think it was Wilson that said, you should go around the corner and dance a jig because great is your reward in heaven and you're in the line of the prophets and Jesus himself who came before you. All right, I got point two. Let's do it. Responding to the present. So that's just remembering the past. The evidence for their faith was seen in their perseverance. The evidence for their faith was seen in the, in the fact that they were suffering they were aligning themselves with truth tellers. He said, that's an evidence of your salvation. You have to remember that your confidence in that is in Christ. And in light of that, simple, the next point is simple. In light of that, he's saying, now respond in the present. Just, just do what you've been doing. Keep doing that. What are you saying? Keep persevering. Keep moving forward. Do not throw away your confidence, which is your great reward, for you will have need of endurance. You suffered back then. You feel the fire of suffering and persecution looming in front of you. Don't throw away your confidence. Hold fast to your confession. That's what he's saying. Because the fire is coming, and if you're going to continue to grow in faith, if you're going to continue to grow in boldness for the gospel's sake and for the glory of God, that the, that the nations would all sing the praises of our God, and that should be your desire, by the way, then you're going to face suffering and persecution, and it's going to increase as you continue to go forward. But do not fear, because we will tread down the adder. We will tread down the serpent. We will tread down our enemies. The righteous, the wicked flees when no man pursues, but the righteous are what? As bold as a lion. So hold fast to your confidence, in Christ, don't throw it away because you're going to have need for endurance. You're going to have need so that, when you have, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Yet for a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere uh, and preserve our souls. So we respond in these ways. We respond, number one, in confidence. We respond in confidence because your confidence is in Christ. Don't throw that away. Hold fast to that. Hold fast to your confession in Christ. Grow in that. Remember the faithfulness of Christ. Remember that he has paid for your sins and that he has given you his righteousness and therefore you can walk in newness of life. Stop worrying so much about falling away and just walk. Some of you are like, I'm not sure if I'm... Uh, a sheep or not? Well, start doing sheepy things and let's see what happens. All right? Because if it's in your own strength, it will peter out. If it's in the strength of the Spirit, you will endure. Kind of like Nike. Just do it. <laughs> do it. Respond in confidence. Your confidence is in Christ. Don't throw it away. Hold fast to that. You don't move on from your confidence in Christ. That is our great reward. That is our great confidence. Now, if if you're worried, let me just pause here because this is really important. And all through Hebrews, we have to make sure that we are reminding people to check their heart and see if they actually are doing sheepy things to see for sure if they are sheep, okay? The evidences. If you want more evidences of your salvation, all you got to do is go back to last week's sermon, or a couple weeks ago, I should say, um, the um, And Let Us Consider sermon that Pastor Matt preached, Hebrews 10, 19 to 25. We have this confidence if you have this confidence to enter the holy place of God, if you're actually a Christian, if you've actually been enlightened, then you will draw near in full assurance of faith. You will hold fast to confession and hope without waving, wavering. You will, continue, you will consider how to stir one another up. You will not neglect to meet together. More evidences of the believer. 
you're not sure, go back and read those things. Ask one of your elders, do you see the fruits of the Spirit in me? Do you see evidences for the Spirit's work within me? Ask a brother and sister in Christ for evidences. Those evidences from 19 to 25, are these things in my life? And if not, and if you realize that you are not in Christ and you've been living a lie, then repent and believe the gospel, praise God, and become a part of the family of God, right? If you've been a coward Christian, the same call for you, repent, believe the gospel, and trust in the confidence that is in Christ. For those who are actually in Christ, remember, remember the warning that was given about falling away, and upon remembering that warning, Immediately look to the sufficiency in Christ and take the next step of faith and repentance. Right? You hear the warning? That warning is heavy. I don't want to fall away. How do I not fall away? Hold fast to my confession. Hold fast to Christ. Look to the sufficiency of Christ and not myself and take the next step in faith and repentance and respond in confidence. Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but trust and obey. So we respond in our faith, in confidence. We respond in perseverance. For you will have need of endurance that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. Run with patience. This is a dogged, determined run, grit-filled run, run that you may obtain. God desires resilient runners. You are a marathon runner, not a sprinter. I know it feels like you're running a marathon right now hearing me talk, but hang in there. You are not a 100-yard dasher. You are a marathon runner, all right? Your running is gonna look ugly at times. Keep running. If you continue, you will receive. If you continue to persevere, you will receive the promise. Run that you may obtain. Third, respond in persevering faith. Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul will have no pleasure in him. The key to our perseverance is faith. Author here is quoting from Habakkuk, Habakkuk 2, 3 through 4. Here's what's taking place. The people of God were suffering in Habakkuk, and the author of Hebrews says this passage will help the people who are struggling and who are about to face persecution. And it reminds them that the thing that got Habakkuk and the people of God through the ordeal that they were in was faith and the strengthening of their faith. It gave them perseverance. It gave them confidence in the face of trials and tribulations, their faith. God looks at Habakkuk, who is whining and complaining about all the hardships that he faced, and he says, have faith, Habakkuk. And later, Habakkuk sings a great song of praise about the Lord. Remember this, Jesus is returning sooner than you think. The truly saved will persevere by faith. The lost with no faith will shrink back. This is the exhortation God gave to his prophet and to his people in the Old Testament, and it's the same uh, exhortation that he gave to his people here in our book of Hebrews today. The key to your perseverance, Christian, is faith. Do not throw it away. Why? Because you're going to need it. Because as you grow in faith, persecution will rise. You're going to need to grow your faith. We're about to go into chapter 11. He's setting us up for that. The greatest exposition of faith in the whole Bible. And they were strengthened by faith. You will have need because trials and tribulations will come. There's more work to do for the kingdom and that work will meet resistance. But here's your confidence, 1 John 5, 4 through 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Amen? Who is that that overcomes the world except the one who has this confidence, the one who believes Jesus is the Son of God? Your confidence is rooted in Christ. Listen, here's the last thing I'll say. 
Your faith is not an intellectual assent to God's declarations, but faith rather moves the believer to action to actually do the will of God. Do you remember when we talked about Jesus being the willing sacrifice? Because we are willfully sinful, therefore we need a willful sacrifice. If you are in Christ and have this faith, this is what he's saying, is that you will actually do in action the will of God because you are in Christ, been forgiven, he's given you his righteousness, therefore you can go. Christ obeyed, it was costly, it was hard, but the fruit of his faithfulness brought about your sanctification. Faith is not something that we just think about, sit around and meditate on. The early believers were not sitting around strengthening their faith by just reading their Bible in private and not doing anything with it in public. Faith must go to action. Satan demands, listen, Satan demands your faith. He wants to destroy it. So in 1 Peter 5, he says this, Be sober, be watchful, because your adversary, the devil, devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in what? Your what? Faith. The way to not be overcome is to strengthen your faith. The very thing that Satan wants to destroy is the very thing you must strengthen to combat him. Strengthen your faith. I'll give you this list. We're already sweating a lot up here, and you're, you're um, stuck to your seats, so I'll give you this list. Here's a way to strengthen your faith. Read your Bible. I'll just give you this list uh, without any exposition on it. Two, pray earnestly that you won't fall away. Three, read theologically rich and spiritually challenging literature and hang around with people who will challenge you. Surround yourself with fellow believers. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Treasure Jesus above all things. He is your better and lasting possession. And six there, rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. So be encouraged, man. You are fighting well if these things are evident in your life. Don't lose heart. As you face tribulation and trial, don't lose heart because you have a greater and lasting possession. Be encouraged if these things in your life. You're not falling away. You're persevering. Praise God. He ends it by is saying this, he includes himself, the author includes himself uh, in his letter in verse 39, but we, but we are not those who shrink back and are, destroy, are destroyed, but those who have faith and preserve their souls. It reminds me of, uh, isn't it uh, the hobbit where they're in the cave and, and, and uh, Doran asked them, or excuse me, Thorin asked them to follow him? And uh, there are overwhelming odds out there. And he says, uh, we are sons of Doran, and Doran's folk do not flee from a fight. Remember that? Like, we, are, we are sons of the Most High God, and we do not flee from a fight. We do not fear the evil one. No, we fight. I'll leave you with a, a hymn because, you know, it's me. You heard of this one? Soldiers of Christ, arise and put your armor on. Strong in the strength which God supplies through his eternal Son, strong in the Lord of hosts and in his mighty power, who in the strength of Jesus' trust is more than conqueror. Stand then in his great might, with all his strength endure, and take to aid you in the fight the paraplea of God. 
From strength to strength, go on. Wrestle, fight, and pray. Tread all the powers of darkness down and win the well-fought day. Leave no unguarded place, no weakness for the soul. Take every virtue, every grace, and fortify the whole. That having all things done and all your conflicts past, ye may or come through Christ alone and stand complete before him at last. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. We praise you. We know that our confidence is in you. We know that we cannot do this in and of ourselves. So give us courage. Give us perseverance. May we trust that as we persevere in your strength, that we will indeed inherit the promise. For we are not people to be pitied because our God is alive, and we are not people who shrink back, but who persevere. In Jesus' good name, amen.